So good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Let's pray. God, I just ask that there would be brutal honesty and love in this place this morning. Give me wisdom to share. May we be the kind of community that can talk about how things are, whether it's painful or beautiful. May today this be about you and not us. And may this church be a mysterious force in the world that is so compelling that people will want to be a part of it. Amen. Uh, if you've been attending here and uh, you're not plugged in yet, I think it's, you know, for us it's really important that as you come to Seoul that you get connected into a life group. And our life groups are run on a semester. But not only are you connected into a life group, that you'd be connected into a ministry of sorts. And one of the ministries that uh, uh, I really value, and it's just a great crew. And I just had a brief encounter today, and, and they looked at me and said, you know, we can really use a few more people as we get into summertime. And I, and I thought, you know, we, don't, we take for granted so much of what's going on. When you show up, there's a setup team, there's the coffee team, there's the children's ministry team, there's a greeting team, there's a sound team, but there's also the video team. And uh, it's a great group of people, and it's a nice, tight-knit community, and they would love to have about three more people who would be willing to be trained about the cameras, about the switching, and everything else. And uh, if this is something that, you know, you're interested in, and maybe you're not even a techie, you don't need to be a techie, we have made it so simple up there. It's all about getting connected with the great group of people and to serve in a, in a great way. And if this is something that interests you, all you need to do is, is uh, send an email to info at Soul Sanctuary. In the subject, put video. We'll contact you. We'll get you connected. And... Uh, um, you can get involved because this is something that's really important for us. And like I said, it's a great crew of people that take their time and serve in different gatherings. And if you're looking to plug in and you're not sure and maybe you don't like people, this is a great place because you've got your whole own room to yourself. You know, there's maybe two other people with you. And, you know, and if you don't want to talk to them, you don't have to, but you can't help but talk to these guys because they're fabulous. So I just want to throw that out there. We'd love to see you get involved if you're calling Soul your home. We've been in this series called uh, uh, Relational Rehab, and it's all about having healthy, uh, healing relationships. And, and the fact is, we all want to have healthy relationships in our lives. We want them in our home, in our school, our workplace, our neighborhood, and, and even in the church. But unfortunately, almost every area that I just mentioned are marked with conflict. It's just the way it is. It's human nature. And so our series is based on the New Testament book of uh, James, and he wrote it to believers who were experiencing conflict. They were in the midst of conflict. He's addressing it. He's not addressing hypothetical situations. He's rather the real situations that have already existed, and he's pointing them out. The thesis of his book is basically live your faith out. Put your faith into action. And he tells us that what we do with our faith matters in the here and now and, uh, and in eternity, and we need to put it into action. We need to live our faith out. And so over and over again, James addresses the issues that have the potential to damage the church at large, but also all of our relationships, wherever we find ourselves with people. In the first week, we've talked about the three keys to getting along with others, right? Listen more, talk less, stay calm. Not calm down, stay calm. If you have to calm down, you weren't staying calm in the first place. Now, if we could just do that, we could probably, if we did that in our communication skills, we would improve all of our relationships by a thousand percent. Then we addressed uh, uh, um, trying to control the tongue and to control our words by allowing the Holy Spirit to control our thoughts and our conversations. And then last week, we saw that great relationships aren't based on feeling or feeling love uh, for somebody, but rather, or even feeling loved by somebody, but rather great relationships are based on wisdom. And uh, they're based on thinking that's actually grounded in truth. And all of our rela uh, um, relationships are based on one of two types of wisdom. This is what we looked at last week, uh, either godly wisdom, wisdom from above, or as James said, wisdom from below, otherwise known as demonic, interesting enough. And so 
that led us all to have to do some self-examination to see where are we drawing our wisdom in our relationships from. And we understood that when you let God have his way inside of you, different things are going to come out of you. When we let God have his way inside of us, different things will come out of us. And today we're going to talk about how to have peace in our relationships. You know, we're not talking about appeasing people or being people pleasers, but rather, how do we walk in humility and have peace in our relationships with one another, be it at home, be it at school, be it at the workplace, be it in our neighborhood? Just like most airplane flights, not all, but most, most relationships experience turbulence, right? I love it. I just love turbulence. My wife, not so much. But I like the roller coaster being 30,000 feet up in the air. There's just something fun about that. But the best of marriages, though, go through difficult seasons. The best of friendships experience misunderstanding and conflicts, do they not? Right? Partnerships in the workplace, wherever you want to go. All of our relationships experience some sort of turbulence. Jesus said in Matthew, he said, blessed are the peacemakers. The message says it a little different. It says, you're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. And so we often create conflict because we try to manipulate things or because we're experiencing pain or uh, we just internalize everything as criticism and and we see everything as a fight in the relationships around us because of the brokenness and mainly the brokenness of our past. We filter our relationships through the brokenness of our past. I was going through a bunch of CDs in my office and DVDs and you know, I was told, one, one of my uh, staff members said, hey, why don't you just, on your bookshelf, just put all the DVDs that we were using and uh, uh, that you've done and gotten the movies at Seoul. And I thought, oh, yeah, it's because I had them all over the place. And so I started going through all my DVDs and CDs. And by the way, I have a box upstairs if you like some old DVDs and CDs and Hillsong other stuff. Uh, there's a whole bunch of free stuff up in the office. You can help yourself and take it. Fight Club, I think, is up there. That's a great movie. Great, But anyway, just saying. I came across an old uh, DVD of Cinderella Man. Now, I'm, I'm thinking about what we're doing. I'm planning my, my life lesson. And, and again, I love historical-based films. That's what this one is. And I was reminded of, of a scene between the two main characters, Jim and Mae Braddock. Um, and, and in the scene, they've reached the lowest point of their life. So the movie, if you don't know, Cinderella Man, uh, is set in the Great Depression. The main character, his name is Jim, he had... Uh, lost his boxing license, he's a fighter, and uh, he only works sporadically as he can get shifts down at the dock, and having gone from a, a comfortable home, he's now living in a hole in the ground, so to speak, without adequate food, without proper clothing and, and medical care, and May, his wife, now watches her children getting sick, it's the middle of winter, this is not going good for this family, and he's out looking for work. She's facing a crisis with her kids alone. It's, it's just like most every, every family has gone through this in one way or another. And earlier in the movie, the, uh, you see where Jim sits down with his kids and he's focusing on making these promises with his kids. I, you, know, uh, you know, the family's going to stay together no matter what. You know, no matter how bad things get, don't worry about it. Because they're watching families breaking up and, and, and moving all over the place. And so this promise of trying to keep the family together and trying to provide the, for the family is the thing that pushes Jim to do what he needs to do, to take care of what he needs to take care of. Um, and I, I sort of need to say this, because that one scene prior, a, a promise to a child is more serious than a promise to an adult. And I'll say it this way, because seeing whether or not mom or dad keeps their word actually shapes that young heart and it shapes the young heart's belief about the trustworthiness of our Heavenly Father. Because a lot of times we equate our relationship with our parents with how we see God. Anyway, I just wanted to say that as an aside. Watch this clip. Mommy. Mm -hmm. Sweet Lord. 
What's wrong? Nothing, sweetheart. Mommy will be right back, okay? was getting worse. And then Rosie started to sneeze. Where are they, man? Jim, we can't even keep them warm. Where are the kids? The boys will sleep on the sofa at my father's in Brooklyn. And Rosie will stay at my sister's. Jimmy, we can't keep them. You don't make decisions about our children without me. But what if they get really sick? We already owe Dr. McDonald. You send them away. Know, that Jimmy. all of this has been for nothing. Well, it's just until we get what back else to even, fall? And then they can If we can't stay together, that means we lost. That means we're giving up. I am not giving up. I am trying to protect our children. Hey, I promised him. Outside the butchers, I looked him in the eyes, and I promised him with all of my heart I would never, ever send him away. You can't do this. You weren't here? You can't break my promises. Jim, you didn't see. You weren't here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Jimmy. What are you doing? Jim? Jimmy? Where are you going? Where are you going, Jimmy? Relationships. <laughs> <laughs> there will be hard days in every relationship, even Sundays. There will be hard times, there will be hard seasons without. Some, actually in some relationships, will actually stretch with no end in sight. Maybe it's financial troubles, maybe it's grief, maybe it's uh, illness, maybe it's conflict. And, you know, we all come, uh, all these things actually come uninvited into our family, right? They come uninvited into our friendships, into our, our workplaces at some point. And even with our friendships um, that were fun, maybe mutually encouraging, sometimes they fall prey to misunderstandings uh, that changes our dynamics. Warm, fuzzy feelings and, you know, doing cool stuff together are not going to keep our relationships intact during these times. They may have before, but, you know, maybe that not, may not happen. But I'll tell you something that will. It's called a diehard commitment. A die-hard commitment. There's another promise at work in this scene that, that uh, is silent, it's not mentioned, we don't see, but it's just as strong. And that's actually, you don't see it in what I showed you, you see it in the movie. It's the marriage vow. It was a marriage vow between Jim and May that has kept them together through excruciating difficult times. May could have easily decided that this guy is a has-been, uh, he's not a hero, he's not the man that she married, you know, he's a loser, he can't keep work, he can't do anything. Jim could have determined himself that he's a burden on the family, um, and, you know, much worse, just sort of walked away and did his own thing. It's a great depression, that's what happens so many times. But the promise for them to stick it out, for better or for worse, is the unspoken strength that's in, the, in this scene, but also in the entire movie. And so when you look at this scene, no matter how angry or misunderstood or afraid they may be with one another, 
they're actually not giving up on each other and they're not giving up on their marriage. Yeah, he left the room. Sometimes we need to do that, right? Sometimes we need to clear our heads. Sometimes we need to gain composure. But commitments are the only things that hold relationships together in tough times. Commitments are the only things that hold relationships together during the tough times. Now, May made her decision uh, out of fear. Obviously, we saw that in the clip. She doesn't consult her husband at all. And, and if she had, they might have decided very differently. And, and fear in our relationships actually drives us to make rash and unwise decisions. When fear hits us, we go crazy. We assume the worst, we do things, we say things, and it affects the relationships all around us. And whenever you're feeling anxious, whenever you're feeling afraid, we literally have to take a step back from the situation. We have to ask God for faith to see the circumstances around us, the decisions ahead from his perspective. Then we need to sort of talk to others, get wise counsel and, and maybe a Christ-honoring perspective. But so many times we don't because fear kicks in and we lose our minds. And somehow we got to figure out how we don't do this stuff on our own. And at the core of how we relate the, uh, to others is the issue and how we see ourselves. And so when fear comes into our life and fear comes into our relationships, it literally, through us, affects everybody else around us. James, he writes, and he chimes in at uh, chapter 4, verse 1, and he asks a very simple question. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes fights and quarrels among you? And our passage today is hard-hitting, and it, it stands in stark contrast to this easy believism and serpy spirituality so prevalent in our culture today. You know, these words follow the warning against worldly wisdom. And he goes on, he says, don't they, and he's talking about our fights and our quarrels, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You don't have because, look what he says, you don't have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive, interesting enough, because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. He is giving the church, he is giving believers scattered all over the place a tongue lashing. And without pulling any punches, James points out the fact that the problems among us are actually rooted within us. If you have problems with people, If you're having problems in your marriage, if you're having problems at work, if you're having problems at school, if you're having problems in the neighborhood, this is what we don't want to hear. We live in a society that says it's everybody else's fault. And we take no responsibility. And instead of blaming outside factors or other people when we encounter problems, we have to identify the forces at work inside of ourselves. I think we have to examine our own lives. We have to come to a place in our lives and admit that there's a war going on within us. Specifically, our passions and the pursuit of pleasure that puts us at odds with each other. The word passions is, is the same word used by Jesus in Luke chapter 8, verse 14, in the parable of the soils, describing the seed that falls amongst the thorns. They're, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. In other words, they're, they're caught up with everything else around them. And we have to admit, our main problems are rooted within us, not other people. We don't like that. And so James drills down in verses 2 to 4, and he helps us to identify that there are actually four battles that are going on inside of us. The first one, he says, is unfulfilled desires. 
You know, you desire and you do not have, and so you kill. And so that word there is that, the word is to lust, and we lust or we long for. When our longings are unfulfilled, we're actually prone to take it out on others. Isn't that interesting? When our longings are unfulfilled, we take it out on others. When David's desire for Bathsheba led him to adultery, what does he do? How does he take it out? He took it out on her husband. He kills her. Right? The the verse continues, you covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Isn't that interesting? To covet means to boil with envy. You know, when our insides are stirred up and we're miserable and we go back into attacking mode and we fight with other people. When we're miserable inside, we fight outside. Hard words. According to the last part of verse 2, sometimes we don't have uh, what we really need simply because we don't, we've, we've not told God about our needs. You don't have because you don't ask, he says. So it's interesting. James points out to the believers unasked prayers. What do you, no, I'm always asking for something. No, 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 no. He, he's talking about unasked prayers. The real reason behind prayerlessness is, is often a proud self-reliance. I can do this on my own. And so when I don't pray, when you don't pray, I'm saying, I'm saying to God, I can handle things on my own. When we don't pray, God, I can handle it on my own. And the reason for unanswered prayer may simply be because your prayers have gone unasked. I actually haven't prayed about this to God. I haven't taken the time to pray to God. I haven't actually asked God. Have you ever thought about that's maybe one of the reasons why your prayers haven't been answered is because you actually never asked? Isn't that a profound sense of truth that James is bringing to our attention? According to verse 3, another reason we're discontent might be because we're praying with the wrong motives. Oh, surprise, surprise. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly. He says it right there. There's a right way to ask and a wrong way to ask. You ask wrongly and to spend it on your passions. That blows prosperity gospel right out of the water. The word spend has this idea of squandering and wasting. The word passion is the word for for hedonism, my pleasure only, right? Which is the pursuit of pleasure, this sensual self-indulgence at all costs. And so when I pray selfishly, it shows I'm trying to use God uh, to my own purposes rather than seeking God's purposes for my life. It's interesting how he just lays it out very quickly. Next, James uses some spiritually charged language in verse 4. And what he does is he actually tries to jar the church out of spiritual complacency. And he says, you adulterers, you adulterous people. Literally, it's you adulteresses, plural. So what he's doing is he's picking up on the language of the Old Testament as he's done through his entire note. And it The language of the Old Testament depicts God as the husband and Israel as the wife. You see that throughout all the Old Testament. Speaking through the prophets, God accuses his people of committing spiritual adultery. He goes so far that in the book of Hosea, he instructs the prophet to marry a prostitute as a living demonstration of uh, how God's faithfulness to us even when we are unfaithful to him. In the New Testament passages, we read in Ephesians chapter 5 is a, is a picture of Christ as what? The bridegroom, the church is his bride. And when we're confronting unbelief, Jesus calls out the religious leaders in Matthew 12, an evil and adulterous generation. So we see what James is, is trying to do. How is it that we commit spiritual adultery then? Remember, he's writing to believers. He's writing to the church. And you look at the rest of verse 4. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That word world there refers to the world system. When we have a growing fondness for the world and the system around us, there will be friction between us and God. Tozer said a whole new generation of Christians has come up believing that it's possible to accept Christ without forsaking the world. The word enmity that James uses actually means hostility and hatred. And so what is being said here is that some of us have become so cozy with the world that we've compromised our convictions 
and now we're in conflict with God. Romans chapter 8, the mind is set on the flesh, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says it's impossible to what? Serve two masters. If the problem in the church in the past was legalism, maybe you grew up in a very legalistic system within the church world. The problem today is our, our liberty, our freedom. Where too many of us are in love with the world. That's an amen or ouch. I'm not quite sure. And the problems among us, and this is what James is always getting us, in our relationships, the problems are among us. It's not you, 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 it's me. It's rooted in me. Now, unless we come to the point in our own personal lives daily and admit our problems, we'll never be in the place to receive God's promises for us. Look at verse 5. Do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell within us? This is really not a, a reference to a specific passage, but if we were to do that, Exodus chapter 25 is certainly in our view for looking at this, where it says, For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. My guess is that most of us don't actually think that God is jealous, but he actually earnestly desires the undivided attention of his people. God wants your attention. Think about that. We don't really see him that way, but God wants your attention. And since, the God, the, since God the Father has placed the Holy Spirit within believers, God longs for the Spirit to communicate. And he uses through the Spirit to communicate. And he uses his scripture to communicate. Romans 8 says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. God wants to communicate with you. God wants to talk to you. Are you listening? And if you're having a struggle with God's uh, a daily time in God's word and prayer, you need to contemplate this, this truth. God wants to meet you more than you want to meet with him. God wants to meet with you more than you want to meet with him. And instead of thinking you have to do this, think about how much God is actually longing to have a relationship with you. Oh, Jerry, I thought we were talking about relationships with people. Yeah, but it has to start in here. It has to start here. And not only does God want to meet you or with you, more than you want to meet with him. Verse 6 tells us that he is this grace-giving God. We've talked about this a lot. But he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. The word oppose was used, it's, it's a military terms. it's setting an army against. And so Proverbs 16 says that God hates haughty eyes, you know, proud eyes. The only way to receive God's grace is how? By being humble. That's the, the essence, the title of today's life lesson. If God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, we, make, we better make sure that we're not making ourselves opponents of him. He opposes the proud. He wants us to walk in humility. And as we walk in humility with God our Father, we walk in humility with one another. The success for having healthy relationships. And so James, he can't say that we, we sit passively by and we wait for resolution in a conflict to happen spontaneously. That's not James. James goes right into it, and as he's writing this letter, he gives us ten active commands, almost machine gun style in the next four verses. He says, submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your heart, and then he, I love this, be miserable, mourn, and weep. Oh, that's encouraging. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom, and then he says, humble yourself. So God's way to resolve conflicts is to submit to him, to resist the devil, to repent of all sin. God calls us to intentionally engage in ten actions. We can't just sit back in our relationships and passively wait for things to get better or for conflict to suddenly resolve itself. 
But that's how many of us do, right? Uh, so those of us who are into avoidance conflict, I'll just pretend it's not there. It will go away, right? But first, what's the first thing he says? He tells us to what? Submit to God. Heart check. Again, here we go. Now, again, this submit is another military term, meaning to uh, subjugate by placing under. We're, we're called to put ourselves under the rank of God. Are you ready to stop fighting? Are you ready to stop the struggling that's going on in your relational life, but in your spiritual life, and sub- submit yourself subordinate yourself to his sovereignty. Putting God number one. Not yourself, not our pride, but putting God number one in our lives. The next thing it says that we're to resist the devil. And interesting enough, that term resist is a military term. It has this idea of get standing against. Again, Paul says something similar in Ephesians when he uh, talks about putting on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against. There's a battle. It's military. There's something going on. And we get our word antihistamine, I don't know if you knew this, from that Greek word that's translated resist. Isn't that interesting, right? And so it means to stand against. It means to uh, oppose. It's active. It's pushing against. And Paul uses it in reference to spiritual warfare. Uh, it, like I said in Ephesians 6, 11, 6, 13, uh, therefore take up the full armor of God that you will be able to resist the enemy in the evil day and having done everything, what? To stand. So you're pushing up against. And this prescription when we read it from James, actually involves a promise. When we fight, when we resist, Satan will flee. There's a lot going on in our lives, and a lot of it is spiritual. We don't like bringing the spiritual in, but it is. And I think we have to become aware of that, that many times our conflicts with other people, it's spiritual. And when we need to resist, when we humble ourselves, the promise of this is that Satan will flee. The next action also comes with another promise. When we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Oswald Sanders said, Both scripture and experience teach that it is we, not God, who determine the degree of intimacy with him that we enjoy. We are at this moment as close to God as we really choose to be. I've said this before, and I remember putting some people right over the edge. We are as close to God as we choose to be. As we draw near to him, he draws near to us. It is so easy for us as believers to drift away from God. James' point is, guess who's moved? Do you feel like God's far away? Guess who has moved? James's letter to the church is not, oh, this is so nice. James's letter to the church is, open your eyes. And yet, there's this tenderness about it. It's, it's like, yeah, this hurts so good. You know what I'm saying? You know, oh, God, God feels so far away. Oh, guess who moved, man? Because it wasn't God. If you're engaging and continuing and you're quarreling with people and you're in conflict, what James is saying is that you're not close to God. That you've drifted. And he's calling you to draw near to him with the promise that he's, he's ready and he's waiting for you to draw near. And you cannot be close to God at the same time that you're angry or you're bitter towards somebody else. That's exactly what James is saying. So are you angry or bitter towards somebody else? That is why immediately after teaching just how serious anger is, Jesus says in Matthew 5, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. You can't draw near to God until you first clear up as much as it is in your power any relational difficulties. Isn't that interesting? And if you think that you're close to God, but you're angry and you're bitter, you're literally deceiving yourselves. Those are things that make you go, hmm. 
Again, what is James doing? He's bringing the spotlight back into us. And he says that when we submit, when we resist and draw near, we become acutely aware of something very interesting. We become acutely aware of our own sinfulness. But none of us really like that, right? Then James sort of sounds like an Old Testament prophet. And he says this, you know, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Welcome to church. It's so good to have you here today. He's talking about a thorough, heartfelt repentance. And, and his words show that, look, listen to me very carefully, people, especially in our culture. His words show that there's an emotional element to genuine repentance. It's not just a glib, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry I've offended you. Or, you know, friends, oh, I'm sorry I've offended you. Uh, or I'm sorry you're upset. When you are truly repentant towards God, you accept a full um, responsibility for your sin. You don't excuse it as, a, oh, it was a shortcoming, it was a mistake, it was just an oversight. No, he's saying you mourn over how you've offended God, disgraced his name, how you've hurt another brother and sister in Christ. It's a mourning that takes place. And then James says, listen, everybody needs to take a bath. Well, at least my, my, wash your hands, right? Everybody wash your hands. 2 Corinthians 7, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. What? Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We're to become these holy people. Well, I don't know. I don't like holy. No, we are to be that. We must also actively engage in our internal purification. That's holiness. That means that there's work that needs to go on inside. A good example of this is found in, in David's prayer in Psalm 51. Purge me with hyssop so I shall be clean. Wash me. Take a bath, right? And I shall be whiter than snow. And then what does he say? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We need to take a bath. Some literally, but we need it. We live in a world that overly focuses on one's happiness. And even as Christians, we have a hard time accepting the theology of suffering. And this verse is actually very clear. God calls us to embrace our brokenness. Be wretched. Mourn. Weep. Honestly, what James is really doing is he just wants us to realize that our sins should cause us sorrow. He develops it actually further in chapter 5. But really, until we embrace our brokenness, until we embrace our brokenness, you and I, in all of our relationships, will persist in our pride. Sorry, I got puffed up too much there. And then it brings us really down to the key in, in verse 10, where it says, humble, humble yourself before the Lord. Somebody once said this, and I, I, I couldn't find who did, who did, but they said, if we don't humble ourselves now, the Lord will do it later. And, and that phrase, before the Lord, it's a picture of standing before the face of God. And again, here's another prescription that James gives that comes with a promise. The humble one will become the lifted one, meaning God will lift you up. As we humble ourselves, as we deal with our pride and our issues, as we acknowledge the sin in our lives, and we humble ourselves before the Lord, he then will lift us up. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful speech and a wonderful talk, but how do you actually do it? And so James, what he does is he begins to zero in on God's way of conflict resolution, which deals with our hearts, our hearts before God. In order to work this way, we've got to deal this way first. Conflict with God, when we think about it, is often behind our conflict with other people. Are you in conflict with other people? What's your relationship like with God? And first and foremost, in any conflict, listen, we need to be right with God. 
Pride is at the heart of it all. It's at the heart of all disobedience to God and of almost all relational conflicts. It's a pride issue. I'm right, you're wrong. I can never win. How many times have we thought about that, right? And so first and foremost, we need to get right with God. If, if God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, as James said, then you want to make sure you're not making yourself God's opponent. And the theme of God humbling the proud but exalting the humble, it runs through so many different scriptures. Samuel, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Matthew, Luke, Peter. It's throughout all the scriptures. So surrendering to God's will really is the first step towards any and all restoration. You remember the movie Bruce Almighty? Smite him, Moti, smite. Like, you know, I just love that movie. Again, I was going through my stuff. Guess what I found? Classic. Classic. So in the movie, Bruce is obviously spiraled after being given the task to, uh, by God to take over ruling his city with God's power. If you've seen the movie, uh, you, need, you need to watch the movie. Everything Bruce has done has actually produced death. He's acting as God. It's, he's causing chaos. He's created chaos with what? His own selfishness and his own pride. And Bruce now realizes he needs a real he needs the real God to step in and help him pick up the pieces of what he's already made a mess of, not only in his city, but in his own personal life. Watch this clip. You know what I do every night before I go to bed? I tuck my kids in, maybe have a scoop of ice cream and watch Conan. You know what Grace does? She prays. Most of the time for you. Please help Bruce find himself, find contentment, find you. Dear God, please help Bruce. He seems to be struggling. Dear God, give Bruce strength. Dear God, bless Bruce. Bruce, Bruce, Bruce. It's her. Sandy, it's her. She's logging on. She's praying right now. Of course, you know the movie gets hit by a semi because he kneeled down in the middle of a highway. <laughs> so Bruce comes to this realization that even if he had the power of God, he would still create chaos and death. That's part of what the whole movie's all about. And again, in his pride, in his selfishness, that got him in trouble in the first place. And those two spiritual defects created even worse problems when he received God's power, you know, when he was granted that ability to answer all the prayers. And so Bruce, like the rest of us, like you and me, was blind, really, to his own spiritual brokenness. 
And so we, we fall in lust and we call it love. We cheat in order to win. We lie to cover up our evil. We deflect the guilt. We feel by claiming, well, everybody else is doing it. We blame others when on our ungodly plans fall apart. But sooner or later, we reap what we have sown. And it may take a while, but there's a direct correlation between our choices and our experiences. And Bruce's selfishness has caused problems because that spiritual choice always takes what it wants, when it wants. And it doesn't care who gets hurt in the process. And one of the problems with selfishness in ourselves is that our desires will never be fulfilled. That's huge. They just keep growing no matter how many times we try to satisfy them. It's just not enough. This inability to be satisfied then in our relationships leads us to frustration and we act out on that. So with a good job, a good girlfriend, a good apartment, good dog, a good car. You know, in the movie, Bruce felt that he could run his universe without any help from God. But his desires kept hammering at him to have a better job. And since his selfishness wouldn't leave him alone, he uses his pride to what? To take control and try to get what his selfishness requires. This is what we do in our everyday relationships. He's then caught in a spiritual trap with only one way out. In the past, in the movie, Bruce was able to blame God and shift the failures of his life. It's always somebody else's fault, right? The blame game. But now, you know, he was God for a season, and he realizes that he alone is the source of his own problems. And what does he do with that realization? He turns, and he, his need for God comes in, and, and he asks him to help him see this new path of life. And for for. Bruce, that moment is when his real life begins. He's turning his life over to God. He's asking for help to see what's true and what's real. I love that clip because it really expresses what James is talking about when we, when we uh, uh, weep and mourn and submit and draw near to God. You saw it in his emotion. You saw it when he falls to the ground. You heard it in his words of his prayer and his surrender. And then James speaks directly again in verses 11 and 12. Brothers and sisters, don't slander one another. Again, pulls no punches, goes right to the point. Anybody who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment. There's only one lawgiver and judge, and no one who is able uh, uh, to save and destroy but you. Who are you to judge your neighbor? You'll notice that James is appealing to familial relationships. Dear brothers, brothers and sisters. We can see that from the tense of the verb, he's, he's connecting with something that's happening frequently within the church. He's saying within the church, don't slander one another. Now, slander in itself generally means maligning somebody or damaging their reputation by sharing false or deliberately misleading information. But the word that James actually uses here has a broader connotation, meaning that it includes any form of criticism. Or running somebody down because of our own selfish motives. In other words, what you are saying may be true, but the reason you're sharing it is to make yourself look good and to put the other person in a bad light. And if your motive in criticizing somebody is jealousy, selfish ambition, rivalry, pride, or hatred, James goes out and says, look, it, you're judging wrongly. And I think, you know, again, we've looked at this. There's hardly a verse in the Bible that's more misunderstood and more used out of context than Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7. It says, you know, don't judge so that you're not going to be judged, right? And you shouldn't be judging. You know, I've already taught on this, so I'm not going to bring it up. But in Matthew 7, you can download the life lesson. It's there on the screen. So you can actually look for it and, and then update yourself on it yourself. The command of, you know, don't judge unless you be judged. You're not supposed to judge. That's easy to recite, but it's a little bit more complex to understand. 
I do need to say that when we say do not judge, it doesn't mean that you can't say anything critical or pointed to another person. It doesn't mean don't discern and don't think. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus himself alludes to certain people as dogs and pigs. He literally says that. He also warns his disciples to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing uh, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. In those two examples, Jesus is making a judgment about various individuals. Later in Matthew, Jesus requires his disciples to confront believers who are in sin. Furthermore, the New Testament is clear that, that Christians are to judge both error and sin. So despite what many people believe and how we twist Scripture out of context, the ideal Christian is not an undiscerning, all-accepting jellyfish who lives out the misinterpretation of judge not. We live in a time when tolerance, unity, and love, which usually means being nice, are dominant themes in our culture. And if you dare confront, if you dare expose sin, if you dare label somebody's teaching even in the church circle as unbiblical or a person as even a false teacher, well, then you're being accused, especially as a pastor, well, you're, you're, you're being judgmental and unloving. No, we're calling you out for sin. So then, what, what, what does judging others wrongly mean? Because that's what James is talking about. So let me break it down for you. You judge somebody wrongly when you criticize them out of jealousy. When you criticize them out of bitterness or out of selfish ambition or some other sin. Rather than to seek building them up in Christ. In other words, our motive in all of this with our relationships is crucial. You judge somebody wrongly when you assume that you know all the pertinent facts and motives behind the person's words or actions. And we seldom know all the pertinent facts to make these statements. Also, it's wrong to take your personal convictions in such areas and set them up as standards to judge those who don't share your convictions. You know, Paul devotes two chapters to this problem. In Romans chapter 14, uh, vegetarians, I speak to you today. You know, uh, in Romans 14, vegetarian believers were judging those that ate meat. Stop judging, you guys. Others observed certain uh, days as holy and, and judged those that didn't do it. In 1 Corinthians, 8, 1 Corinthians 8, the problem was that of eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. You know, there are areas where the Bible doesn't give definite commands. Or definitive, I should say. But we do. And that was the major sin of the Pharisees. They had added dozens of man-made rules to God's law. And then they judged everybody who didn't keep the rules. They were majoring on the minors. How many times do we do that just in our own areas? They were neglecting the more serious areas, but they were majoring on the minors. They were focused on the outward appearances, but their hearts, as Jesus said, were far from God. They neglected God's commandments, but they held to the traditions of men. And, and as Christians, we fall into this era. For example, the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not smoke. Am I stepping on toes yet? Just Because I'm going to. Um, there are many godly saints, people that I, I read. I, I, we quote Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, G. Campbell, Morgan, C.S. Lewis. They all smoked. They did. Awesome for them. Now, I belong to a tribe, a fellowship, a denomination, whatever you want to call it. That if we were all at a pastor's conference, all the pastors from my tribe were all there, and one pastor would light up a cigar or a cigarette during a break, others would think that this guy denied his faith. And yet, oh, this is going to get me in trouble. <laughs> but I just got to say it. And yet many of those same pastors are Seriously oversized temples of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Catch what I'm throwing? And, and maybe, just maybe, throughout the conference we have watched some of these temples violate one of the fruit of the Spirit, which is called self-control, at the buffet table. 
as they have gone back for thirds and fourths and seconds on dessert. All that to say that if we're judged smoking to be wrong, why don't we judge gluttony to be wrong? You know, it's easy for us as Christians to fall into judging by mandate standards rather than really by God's word. Like I said, we're not supposed to be spiritual jellyfish. We're supposed to point out sin and error. We're supposed to make those statements, definitive statements. But many times, our basis are way off. We need to stop looking down our noses on those who sin differently than we do. You want to let that sit for a bit? We need to stop looking down our noses on those that sin differently than we do. You're not perfect, so stop demanding perfection from those around you. Let's stop standing over others in spiritual judgment. When we criticize or put down or judge another brother or sister, in essence, we're saying, I know better than God does. That's what James is getting to. Romans 2, 1, Paul points out the absurdity of judging others because we tend to do the same things. Another pastor wrote, he says, without exception, the people who have the greatest number of faults are themselves the most merciless in their criticism of others. Wow! If God is going to judge others, then why do we need to help him out? He knows better. He knows them better than we do. He also certainly loves them more than we do. And then you notice how verse 12 ends with James. There's only one lawgiver and judge, and he is able to save and to destroy. And James says that to, for us to resolve our conflicts, we need to obviously stop judging others. But it also reveals the reasons we shouldn't judge others, because when we do so, we make ourselves judge of God's law rather than doers of it. We are called to be doers, not judges. We usurp God's place as the lawgiver and judge. In other words, we, that pride comes back in. And if another person has wronged you, and this is what it's getting to, you don't need to judge that person because, listen, God is going to do that. You need to pray for them and remember that you're judging the other person is actually a sin, your sin against God. James ends these two verses with a potential question, but who are you to judge your neighbor? This is how he ends it. And that word of neighbor, I'm pretty sure he has what Jesus was talking about, the second commandment coming to his mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so judging your neighbor is, is not really loving him, is it? And so I think James is implying, do you think that you know, you're God? And if not, you know, why do you set yourself up in God's role? Clearly judging others stems from incredible arrogance. When you find yourself thinking judgmentally of others, judge your pride. God rightly could have judged you. That's just the way he is, but he didn't. He will righteously judge the one that you are condemning. But it's not our place to do so. If the band can come up. It's not our place to do so. Setting ourselves up as judge leads to conflict and broken relationships. Do you judge people in your relationship? So, when you want to think about it, to have the best conflict resolution and healthy relationship, it really comes down to you and me starting with humility. Where we have to humbly submit to God. And earnestly, we have to seek to build up others. Use words of positive affirmation and encouragement. And when we begin to do this, this begins to restore the harmony in our relationships. So the next time that you're tempted to run somebody down, remember James's pointed question, who are you to judge your neighbor? Judge yourself instead. So the takeaway for me this morning is actually quite simple. We, we all need to walk in humility. There's no room for our pride and defensiveness and superiority in real relationships. We just need to get on the same level. We need to see eye to eye. We need to stoop down to serve others rather than expecting to be served. We need to be humble. But it starts with our relationship with God. In a world where we don't trust people, honestly, the second point is that we need to be vulnerable. When we get into relationships, we actually decide whether or not we're going to get hurt in those relationships. We don't want to get hurt. We don't trust people. We don't like that. 
But if Jesus is our example, he actually allowed himself to get hurt even by the closest friends all around him. And so we need to be vulnerable with one another, and there is a risk to that, and I get it, right? But I think being vulnerable with the people in our lives, that is the key to healthy relationships. Can you let people speak into your life? Can you let people that you're in conflict with speak into your life? And finally, we've been saying it every week, show grace. If you want great relationships and everything that you're acting in that are healthy, that are life-giving, you have to be a grace giver, not a nitpicker. So just before Jordan comes and leads us in communion, I want us to reflect on what I just said to you all this morning. I'm going to ask you right now where you're at, just simply close your eyes. I'm going to ask you to take your hands, put them on your lap with your palms up. And in this posture of prayer, very simply, this represents the receiving of the healing of God. And as I pray and guide you through this time of inventory and self-assessment, I just simply want you to ask God to begin to fill those areas of hurt in your life with his presence and his healing. And maybe for some of you, it's actually coming to an acknowledgement of repentance and sorrow and asking God for forgiveness because of pride and selfishness. So forgive us, Lord, where we have thought more of ourselves than you. Where we have stopped seeing from an eternal vantage point and just kind of consumed what is today. Teach us and show us what it's like to love our neighbor. Teach us and show us what it's like to pursue you because I think it will look different for each of us here this morning. So help us, Father. Help me deal with the fear that is before me, the things that I need to change, and yet I hang on to them as a child who's afraid to share a a toy. So God, help me to cast my burdens, my concerns, my cares, my fears on you. Help me to set aside a time each day to meet with you alone, to draw close to you. And as I come before you, teach me to pray in the way you want me to. Help me to learn more about you, Lord. You said if anybody thirsts, let him come to me and drink. God, may we thirst for more of you. Because to be honest, probably most of us here are in a dry place without you. And so we come to you this day. And I pray that we'll be able to drink deeply of your spirit. And I know you are everywhere, but I also know that there are deeper manifestations of your presence that I personally long to experience. So draw me close as I draw near to you. So that I can dwell in your presence like never before. Amen. In a moment, we're going to go to the communion table. If there's anything that should humble us, it's fitting that we're talking about humility today because it's when we remember and reflect upon what God has done for us, that keeps us free from boast, free from from bragging on any of our good deeds or any things that we've done. But in humility and by grace, we remember And we reflect and we become thankful as we go to communion. And so at this time, I'm going to ask the servers just to make their way to the tables. And I'm going to read a scripture for us as they do that. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this morning, we are going to take communion together. It's going to be a little bit different this morning than past weeks, though, as there are servers at each station. So there's four stations. If you're in the first five or six front rows, please use the front stations. And if you're in the back rows, use the stations at the back. But at each communion table are servers, and they will serve you the bread and the cup. His body broken for you, his blood poured out for you. And as each, as you are served, I ask that you just eat the bread and drink the cup, 
right there at the table. And there are little baskets right beside the table that you can dispose of your cups at. But afterwards, after you've taken the elements and partaken in communion, I invite you just back to your seat just for a time of worship and reflection this morning. You with me? And so let's take communion this morning. I'm going to ask everyone to stand. And uh, I'm just going to ask you to make your way to the tables and be served this morning. And just thinking about humility and what God has done for us, let's remember and reflect upon that. Amazing words and promise that God is for us. And he is our help, as Pastor Jerry prayed earlier, as we seek him to live lives of humility. And so allow me just to end this gathering today with a blessing. In ancient times, the one who blessed did so by extending hands, and those who want to receive a blessing did likewise. And here it is, taken from 1 Thessalonians. May God our Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ increase your love and make it overflow for one another and for all people so that he may establish your hearts as blameless in holiness and humility before our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes. Amen. Amen. God bless. Have a great week. Join us for prayer on Wednesday as we pray for our ministries of our community. Have a great week.